Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. Yeah, you. Fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. Every week, we meet here for an hour to experience, educate, empower, and encourage each other through our lessons learned and celebrate our joy. While at this table, we share topics that tradition tells us there are some things you just don't talk about, but not here. Here, judgment has no place. Here, we are living beyond the wreckage. Each week, we'll start right where we are. We ask only that you come to the table dressed in your inner awesome, accessorized with your authenticity and your vulnerability. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And yes, I know, it's date night. Not to worry, you can catch our podcast on my website, tyragarlington.com, or on our YouTube channel, Just Key and Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. And for those of you who just love to stay connected, keep those emails coming, tyra at tyragarlington.com. Thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our theme song, and especially for naming it, I'm Listening. Frankly Speaking with Tyra G is becoming a dynamic human library. Stories from over 110 guests. Not only do they have stories, they are stories. And we're reminded that it's how they put them together that sets us apart. That's why I ask each of them to introduce themselves so we can hear the rhythm of their language and feel their energy. By introducing themselves, they give us a conversational barometer to listen beyond their words. But before we meet today's guest, I want to create a common thought space to support this month's theme, Voices from the Future. And this week's focus, Generation is Millennial. I did a lot of reading trying to get ready for this. And what I discovered is a lot of articles have cliches and kind of a negative feel for who millennials are. So I kept looking, and I came up with something that I thought was both descriptive and informative. So I want you to listen carefully and be educated. Millennials, they are both threatening and exciting. Since the baby boomers, they're the most of those things. It was the baby boomers that brought about the social revolution. Not because millennials are trying to take over the establishment. They are growing up without one. That's why they become interesting and amazing and frightening. Think about this. 
The Industrial Revolution made individuals far more powerful. They could move to a city, start a business, read, and form organizations. The Information Revolution has further empowered individuals by handing them the technology to compete against huge organizations, hackers versus corporations, bloggers versus newspapers, tourists versus nation states, YouTube directors versus studios, app makers versus entire industries. Millennials don't need us. That's why we're scared of them. I chose this additional content because it focused on millennials in the workplace and it was not full of those cliches and because it was hopeful. Think of what you hear next as a foundation for the upcoming discussion. To walk in this space, multi-generational workplace expert Lindsay Pollock says in her March 14, 2018 blog the following, and I quote, when I talk to people about my work with multi-generational in, with the multi-generational workplace. I hear a lot of preconceived notions about millennials. Unfortunately, most of it is negative and based more on cliche than fact. So today, I want to provide a peek behind that millennial mask. Although it's impossible to define a group of 80 million unique individuals, here are some general descriptions I feel comfortable applying to the largest generation in the United States today. It makes sense that millennials would want to avoid the term when you consider the negative generalizations that are frequently applied to this generation in the media, like entitled, narcissistic, and lazy. And it might also be because they are weary of being blamed for just about everything. So first, don't call them millennials. Wait, what? Let me explain. A study from the Pew Research found that only 40% of millennials even identify with the word millennial, compared to nearly 80% of those aged 51 to 69 who consider themselves a part of the baby boomer generation. I was actually surprised, surprised that almost half of millennials claim to be comfortable with their generational moniker. Since I find that most young people, and the ones I meet, actually prefer that their generation not have a title at all. I also find this generation to be more focused on describing themselves as individuals, hence the rise of personal branding as a career skill than as members of a massive group. This begs the question, what should we call this cohort, if not the M word? Clearly, I do use the term millennial because it's helpful to have some sort of terminology, but I use it in a respectful fashion, realizing that most millennials don't care for any group name at all. The bottom line is, it's important for managers, marketeers, and recruiters to understand that using the word as a descriptor as in millennial focused office will rarely come off positively. Young professionals tell me they prefer terms like emerging professionals or next generation when referring to their age group in the workplace. So, what is a millennial, if we can use that word? 
cohorts. Let's move on to some actual data points about the cohort. P.S. Now, don't worry if all of this is news to you. You didn't miss Generation Day in school. It's all somewhat nebulous and ever-changing. And being millennial is, in many ways, a state of mind. Pew Research even has a fun quiz called, How Millennial Are You? And it shows you where you fit on a scale. So how old are millennials? Demographers disagree, actually. But the date range I use comes from the Pew Research Center because I find them the most reputable. They peg millennials as those who were born between 1981 and 1996. But other sources offer time frames. The thing about generations is that there is no set date. It's not like the hospitals made a declaration. This is the last Gen Xer. The next baby born will be a millennial. So. How did millennials get their name? Credit for the moniker millennial goes to Neil Howe and the late William Strauss, who first used the term in the mid-90s and wrote Millennial Rising in the 2000s. It was an outgrowth of work they had done for a book called Generations, which was among the first to explore the idea that groups share qualities such as belief and attitudes and values and behaviors because of the time period when they grew up. Other names applied to millennials include Generation Y, yes, millennial, and Gen oh, Z are, the, are the, the generation to follow. But when you hear anything we say today, we're thinking millennials, Generation Y, are the same exact generation. They're also called echo boomers. As children of boomers, in other words, my kids, millennials make up the largest generation since their parents. Digital natives, they are the first generation who don't know adult life without the internet and personal tech devices. Are millennials really that different from other generations? We're all human beings, and I believe there's a lot of what's considered to be millennial behavior is more about age and life stage rather than generation. After all, it's not hard to remember when Gen X was known as the slacker generation because we changed jobs a lot, got married later than our parents. However, there are some very tangible differences between millennials' life experiences and those of previous American generations. Here are a few statistics that I find interesting from the Pew studies. What are millennials like in the workplace? As of 2015, millennials are the largest generation in the U.S. workforce. Now, what we have to do to put that in perspective is for you to understand right now here today in the United States there are four generations in the workforce for the first time in the history of the United States of America. Now there are three main areas where today's leaders need to shift their mindset to work more effectively with millennial employees. I love these distinctions. When it comes to desired leadership style, listen to this, command and control management has become coaching. Uniform, 
uniformity of work experience has moved to a desire for customization. Employees being on a need-to-know basis has morphed into a desire for access and transparency. It's also important to note that millennials are no longer your fresh-faced newbies. This is important. This is important because it relates to my guests today. Today, they are scattered up and down the professional ladder. In fact, an EY survey found that 62% of millennials already manage the work of others. And it's increasingly common for a manager to have direct reports who are older than they are. Wonder how that's making us old folk feel. How do we respond to that? That's something that we need to take home, think about, and come back the next day and reach out and connect with our new realization. In summary for now, Millennials value individuality and are looking to customize their, customize their career paths. Millennials crave recognition. Millennials love technology. You can attract high-performing millennials through robust tech resources. So I close with, no matter what your business or industries, millennials, also known as Gen Y, are your future and the future is now. It's about time we stop shaming millennials. I invited my guest today because she's a shining example of the future is now, both in the workplace and in her personal life. You will see what I mean as I welcome Ms. Sherita Wilkins to our studio and frankly speaking, she will now add her story to our human human library. Thank you, and such a pleasure to be here, and I'm so grateful for the invitation to join you um, and help pour into the program and discuss the theme at hand. Um, And by some definitions, I guess one of the ones you just read, I I wouldn't be classified as a millennial if it's only going to 1986. But other definitions um, expanded out a little bit more. Yes, they do. So I am included in that, um, being born in 1989. Um, but you asked me to introduce myself and kind of uh, do it in such a way where I would share the, the byline to um, my life story. And yes. I think um, for me, nothing encapsulates that better than uh, don't despise small beginnings. And where uh, did that come from? That actually comes from my mother <laughs> and all of her sage wisdom. She said that to me the, the day I started my first quote unquote real job uh-huh. um, working at a McDonald's in upstate New York she said don't despise small beginnings because you never know um, what this may lead to um, and that pearl of wisdom um, I've been able to sort of wear um, as a badge of honor and it has really catapulted me to to where I sit today I wouldn't be here with you all today if it wasn't for that piece of insight so that has been one of the through lines in my story don't despise small beginnings um i i get caught up listening to sharita because we were talking before the show started both of us love language and we love stories and we love how people put words together and as you will hear throughout 
the show, I, you know, I just get caught up listening to her and forget what direction we're supposed to go in. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we got mom jump-starting us with an attitude. Yes. All right. So where did that take you? What? Okay. What kind of stories did other stories did your parents tell you? Mm-hmm. Did culture tell you? And did you tell yourself to get to where you are today? And you need to tell us where that is. Yeah. Okay. Um, my conditioning. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, so I, I, I got to bring us back because m- my conditioning started pretty early when I felt and realized that I had a slightly different upbringing than a lot of kids um, in my peer group. And that was because, um, my, not just because my parents were um, a, an intergenerational marriage, right? My dad was um, born in 1920, and my mom is considered a baby boomer, and they have a considerable age gap uh, between them, um, but love has no age. Amen. Um, it really doesn't, or color. Amen. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Or sexual orientation. Love is love. Yes, love is love, love and love, love does. And love does, and so that love created me, and I came from a union that was very intentional. Um, my mother told me um, that she prayed for me for seven years. Yep. And at the end of seven years. At the end of seven. And, you know, if for those uh, folks who uh, subscribe to the to the Christian faith, seven completion. has a special meaning. Yeah. Yep, in biblical history it means completion. So she, she had me. Um, and then three years later she had my, my younger brother, and she said um, she had him so I could have somebody to play with. He didn't like that very much. <laughs> <laughs> so he was a unique companion. <laughs> Oh, well, okay, mothers do. Mothers do. And that was in response to my older brother who said, you know, he came home from school one day, I think he was in first grade, and he said, you know, I don't have anyone to play with. You know, I want a little sister, a little brother. And so they they, they got working on it. Um, So, (laughs) uh, but so I had a very well-intentioned parents and came from a union um, of love. And they wanted to pour that into me. And I know that that is not everybody's story. And it's a privilege to be able to say that that is part of my story and my upbringing. Um, Also, that came with some challenges because my father was um, 69 when he had me. So he was um, already into the latter part of his life. And his primary goal, his primary goal was that we would remember him. He wanted to be remembered. So he taught us everything early. I was in the kitchen at four years old, you know, on standing on top of a platform, you know, cutting up collard greens. Yes. And uh, I was learning, sitting on his lap at six years old, learning how to drive. And then at seven, you know, wait, 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 Uh uh-uh, we got to put a point there. (laughs) Okay. You're sitting on his lap, learning how to drive. Learning how to drive. Yep. In his red truck. In a truck. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, he taught. You know, I have an image, right? Yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> a big bright red truck because everybody called it Big Red. Okay. And um, a, and so he was teaching us how to drive, and and then he started to tell us his stories Aww. about his childhood and his upbringing, and I just felt like every story he told me, I was more fascinated to learn more and more. And he told us about our history, and he said, you know, my uh, great um, grandfather was a slave owner and my great grandmother was a slave 
and he said they got together and I don't know if it was consensual or if she wanted it or anything but they had my grandfather that's all I know and they had him six months before they emancipated slaves oh and so, that's special yeah and so very unique story in that you know she was there on the plantation giving birth and the father was actually out fighting a civil war on behalf of the Confederates and at that point in the war losing pretty badly and his wife um, found out that he had had a child with a slave and it had the mother sold. So my grandfather never knew his mother and he was raised by his older sister. Yeah. Um, and so they, they traveled and he ended up finding his life partner um, and, and she was also he's sort of, you know, mixed race. You know, mm -hmm. she was uh, Cherokee Indian. And some people say she even had Irish in her. I don't know. Um, we still got to do that part of the, the genealogy. But they had 16 children. And talk about why that was necessary to some people listening that may not understand. So for me, that was vital information for me because m my dad, he comes from a background born in the deep south, Mobile, Alabama. It doesn't get more country, doesn't get more Jim Crow than that in 1920. Yes. And he was very, very light. He, he looked like he could pass for white. Um, and he would tell me that he never tried. He would be with his sister, and his sister is a few shades darker than him. And he said, you know, if, it meant that I would abandon her and abandon my family, and I never wanted to do that. And so from a very early age, I was nurtured to be proud to be black. Yes, 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 yes. Um, now we live in a day and age that if you're mixed race, you can you can choose to, to not identify as either, just be you. But back then you couldn't. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> and and my, my roots, uh, South Carolina. Mm. And uh, maternal grandfather was Caucasian and grandmother was African-American. Don't know how that worked. But yeah. if you looked at the span of my mother and my aunts and uncles, the many hues that come out of that. Yeah. But what I what I learned from the little bit that I'm I'm able to eke out at this point is that impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. Come on now. You know? Yes. And uh I I don't even I'm loving your dad. Yeah. I'm loving his story. I hope it is recorded somewhere. I hope that it can be pushed out so other people can understand through a story like that mm -hmm. what we're fighting today. Right, what we're fighting today. And I realized my story was valuable at about 10 years old when I told it to my one of my teachers. She's one of my favorite teachers, Miss Johnson. She was from New York, uh, from Queens, and but she made her way upstate to Western New York, and she said, you gotta write that down, you gotta, you gotta share that. And so I wrote it down, and writing it down at the age of 10 made me realize how important it was, and yes. I really internalized it. Yes. Because I started to realize this is rare, rare. You know, we had things in our household, like 100-year-old knives and cutlery and things like that, that from, it was from a different time period, from yes. the 1800s, right? That yes. other kids didn't have in their houses. Now, at the, at the same time, you know, other kids had dads who were young and had two good knees and could run and play with them, and yes. our dad couldn't do some of those things. Yes, but so. he could take you to a vicarious place where you were running. Exactly. He, he, His he stories could do yes. to so much. And so while I am a millennial, I come from an intergenerational uh, household, and I am very much nurtured by a lot of that traditional um, thinking, and I, and I think that's a good thing. 
it, it just molded me a little bit different and made me a little bit more mature, I think. Um, and it was a part of how I was formed. And fast forward many years later, I came across a Brazilian term that they use when they introduce themselves to each other. And, and they have a saying, como se formó. Como se formó. And the literal translation is, how are you formed? Oh, I like that. How are you formed? So I can't talk about sort of my upbringing, my conditioning, the things that have grounded me and shaped me without talking about that because that is how I was formed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, and before you were formed, mm -hmm. there was a history. Yes. And, um, wow, I don't even, there's so many places I want to go with that. I know. <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I'm sitting up here, I'm almost, in one way I want to find out, okay, at the brilliant age that you are now, how do you take that that history, that exposure, and package it in a way that makes you a game changer with your peers? Yeah. Because there's a lot of assumptive behavior going on. Uh, I'm not so sure how much of your peers get into history mm -hmm. and understand the impact on who they are today and what the demands are and why it's so significant. Because boomers, all, all we want to do is make your life better. And I think... Mm, maybe a, a shaded outcome of that was entitlement. Okay. And so tell me all this stuff you bring to the table, how you were formed. Do you ever use it? Yes, absolutely. I use it every day and sometimes ways that I don't even um, see pouring out of me. And I first want to say that the quote-unquote, and I have to put that in air quotes, millennial generation, I think is a highly misunderstood generation. Okay. And last year I had the privilege, I was um, working with a, um, a local publication in the D.C. area, it's an arts publication, uh, and I was asked, and I was so humbled to be asked to write an intergenerational piece about Second City. They were coming here to the Kennedy Center to do um, mm -hmm. a like a sketch, improv, you uh, know, uh -huh. comedy special on um, you know just intergenerational dynamics. And so I got to study that topic. And a couple of things that I learned: one, um, uh, a lot of people say uh, millennials are like tech savvy, right? That's something that we are strongly associated with. And in my research, and screens. And screens, and there's a lot of screen time. Um, but one of the things that I discovered in my research is not so much that we're tech savvy, because I would not call myself tech savvy. It's more so that we're tech dependent. Now, it, you know, I got I to gotta give you kudos for that, that new language. I interviewed a millennial mm. uh, who was truly in that, and, and we talked about the screens. And you know what she said? She said, we use technology for a better, faster way to achieve our goals. Efficiency. Yes, mm -hmm. and so that's the dependency that you all want to get it done. Yep. Get it, I, I got it, I got it. I appreciate that. So we have misnamed you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I got that, we're misunderstood. And one of the ways, it's not tech savvy as, savvy as much as it is tech, tech dependent. dependent. I'm writing yeah. this down. Okay, mm -hmm. go for it. Another thing that I've sort of realized in, in what I do every day, and when I talk to people who are of my generation, is that we're not trying to replace other generations. Uh -huh. At least we, I, we don't feel that way. In fact, we're trying to embrace other generations through technology. For example, we can now go back and actually discover history and get facts, right? And get the hidden history that was um, held back from a lot of us in our traditional education. True. 
And yes, if we go into the bucket of African-American, black, Negro, et cetera, colored, all of those things Mm -hmm. may not get explored. But what I'm going to park right on these phrases, not to replace, but embrace. Because one question I constantly ask, and I think my audience knows by now, I just love younger people. I just (laughs) do. I get, I'm amazed by them. Um, Embracing how to, like this show, I wanted, I wanted to empower and embrace everyone. I wanted mm. to be inclusive. I want us to understand we're part of a tapestry and we become more beautiful yeah. when we step back and see how all of us work together. And um, somehow that seems to be getting squished out. Yeah, and I think people use the term millennial far too often to talk about how a certain group of people are frustrating them, are irritating them. And so we want to kind of generalize and lump everybody together. Um, another way, another thing that I learned about how sometimes generations are grouped is about um, events that take place. Absolutely. During that time period. And there is a generational divide between millennials, to, to some thinkers, and um, uh next gen like generation zers yeah gen zers nexters uh-huh or i-gen i-gen right uh-huh. and that is 9-11 yes and see for me it was mm-hmm. space wow it was kennedy's assassination yes. mm-hmm. it was martin the luther war mm-hmm. vietnam war it was martin luther king it was so yes we are defined by the cultural events and millennials that was so powerful uh all of the things I just said are powerful, mm-hmm. but I think 9-11 put us in a place of feel, feeling powerless, yes. like we had never felt before. As a, it, it sort of. A country thing. It, it, it um, you know, you have this big hot air balloon and then, you know, you um, take a little pin and you burst it. Yeah. And our, our balloon, our bubble was bursted. Absolutely. We are not untouchable. Yes. And that, uh, but what it did and what people used it for was to inject fear into our society on a mass level. Yes. And, and countering, like I was talking mm-hmm. about my generation, Kennedy challenged us to go to the moon. Mm-hmm. In other words, be fearless. Do this. Dare to be the best yes, of yourself. Absolutely. Best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and you're right. You're right. Fear became a part of our lexicon, it became a part of, well, it's a part right now. Yeah. It's huge. So, okay, all right, so, um, um, all right, embracing. So I didn't fully answer your question about um, how do I see myself as a game changer for my generation. I think that's a, a question every single person in my generation should be asked because we need to call ourselves to the task at hand. Um, and I think one of those ways is by embracing the slash that we don't just have to be one thing one lesson that i learned and i learned it the hard way is that we are conditioned to play by the rules they say go to school get good grades get a college education get a good job all your prayers hopes and dreams happiness all that will be answered it will come to you and that's just not the case (laughs) yes they're actually calling our generation the burnout generation um (laughs) <laughs> to some degree um and and I've, I've seen in my own personal life that that is not true that it's actually when you embrace all the things that make you you 
Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. whether you're good at IT, but you also love the salsa dance, right? Yes, <laughs> no, and I do. <laughs> you know, you, you blend all of that together in a mixture that is uniquely you, and you put that out in the world. Yes, and what I'm hearing you say is that's what you all are doing. You may not be articulating it. Let me ask you this. Sure. By all of these labels that are cliche and, and negative, mm-hmm. how do you all receive that? And you can't speak for the whole generation. How yeah. do you receive it, and how do you some people you've experienced receive it? Um, okay. Well, for me, um, there are some labels that I am proud to wear, but I also have to check myself w- when I wear them because the, the most important thing that I am is I'm just a human being. I'm a person. Right? Not just you are I, a human I being. I am. Yeah, I'm a human being. And from that standpoint, I feel everything that every other human being feels. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you start to put labels on it, then you start to dissect and divide. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a woman. Now that separates me from 50% of the world, mm-hmm. right? Now I'm a black woman. Now that separates me from more people, mm-hmm. right? Now, mm-hmm. now I'm a Christian woman. Now mm-hmm. that separates me from more people. Mm-hmm. So we actually use labels as a weapon. We weaponize labels. I like that. And so when we weaponize labels, what's the impact on, I hear you saying, you're coming at it intellectually, but also physically and spiritually, Mm -hmm. you're walking in that place. But what I I got, I really... It impacts our feeling of self-worth, I think. Okay, that, yes. And Mm -hmm. you know why I know that's true? Because I actually do life coaching and I mentor millennials. (laughs) Of all kinds of coming yeah. at me through all kinds of lenses, looking at themselves, and one of the biggest problems they have, well, maybe three, is to understand that what's happening to them mm-hmm. is not who they are. Yeah. The other thing is they're asking in so many different ways, am I enough? Yes. And, and my task as I see it is not so much to tell them, but to walk them to a place when they can discover mm-hmm. they're more than enough. Mm-hmm. And so the other piece of that is it's a process. It is a process. And often, remember we were talking about efficiency and getting it done? Yeah, they want to get it done. Like, oh, Miss Tyra, I need to do this, that, or the other. I'm going, yeah. Mm-hmm. How are we going to make that happen? And mm-hmm. so, you know, constantly using it's not going to be an event. You're going to have to invest some time. You're going to have to work. You know, and you have to have goals. And and, that, and everybody wants it. I think even outside of generations, we have all kind of been conditioned towards instant gratification. Yes. Right? If the Internet doesn't power up in five seconds, <laughs> we're like ready to call a cable guy. and like, what's going on? Right? I know. We've all been conditioned to sort of have these conveniences and have instant gratification. And l- life and joy in anything that's worth having doesn't come that way. And, oh, so very true. And I, I have often decided to take one of these young ladies and go for a walk you know Mm. maybe watch a sunset or whatever and and I said how often do you look up yes yes and I'm a person uh, when I lived in Florida I lived on two acres I had like 250 trees and my husband at the time would find me sitting on the front steps looking up because I could see the stars Mm. and it was so important for perspective like when you go to the beach and the ocean, do you understand there's no way you can control that? Just that physical act actually yes. does something. Yes, yes. Like physically and, you know, with our brains. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And it's opening us it, yeah. to receive, I believe, I believe. But um, I'm going to, I think you ought to make this into a bumper sticker. I'm still at Embracing the Slash. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that was 10 minutes ago. <laughs> but, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. That's good. Tell me, we're talking about who you are and whose you are mm. and some of the stories. Now, I'm not leaving your daddy. Okay. Um, the story about writing in the newspaper. But I want to take where we are now and walk with you in, through your doors to go to work with you. Okay. And what is it like being who you are interfacing not just with millennials. Mm -hmm. You're interfacing and you need to tell us what it is you do. Yes. So I work for the largest woman minority owned uh, workforce solution founded in the U.S. I know that was a lot of verbiage. It sure was. You, <laughs> need, you need to make that into some kind of, mm. mm -hmm. right, um, um, called um, Apple One. It's under the Act One group. Our CEO is Janice Bryant Howroyd. Mm -hmm. The president of my division is her son, Brett Howroyd. It's a private family owned um, business and we just help great people get jobs and we help organizations find great people um, and yes you do it's, and it's a privilege to do that well you know you had told me uh, you met her once and as I was thinking about it uh, the national networking uh, conference they have over at National Harbor here mm -hmm. in um, in Baltimore I mean not in Baltimore excuse me in uh, Maryland every year well it's changing now but she was a keynote speaker when I went mm, four years ago, and wow. she walked out. I want everybody to know. I don't know if you all know, she is the first woman billionaire not named Oprah. Yep. And she, she yep. walked across the stage. She has an energy about her, a can-do attitude, a killer smile, and, you know, she's just, like, working it. And the whole point was, I think she was on stage maybe 20, 25 mm -hmm. minutes, and you never felt yourself exhaling. You were caught up in what she was saying can do. Mm -hmm. She, when she, this is just my impression, y'all, so, yeah. you know, but this is how much she impacted me. And then she did a workshop afterwards, you know, on the floor, and you just go talk to her. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. And yes. There's a lot to getting to where she is, but she was determined. She was determined. So, um, yeah, mm -hmm. the combination now under the Act One, you all have become actually a legal part of them now, right? Yeah, they're our parent company. So okay. they have a lot of different products under the Act One mm -hmm. banner. And yes. Apple One is our staffing okay. division. That's okay. what I want you to mm -hmm. tell. Okay. Yep. All right, so we go to work. Who's your customer? My customer is you. My customer. <laughs> yes, it, it, very soon. It's going to be me. In fact, maybe a year ago it should have been me. <laughs> yeah. No, my, my, my customer is the career seeker. My customer is the hiring manager. My customer is the person who has one foot out the door, but they don't know about Apple One yet. <laughs> Those are my customers. So, in other words, it's also transition. It's not someone that's made a... a distinct step away or movement it's somebody that may be thinking about it yeah w what we help people step into is a progressive um 
next move in their career. Mm-hmm. And we build a network. And we're not one of those um, companies who will do a lot of advertising. You won't hear radio ads. You won't uh, see billboards. Um, our, our network is really our net worth. And so when someone has a positive interaction with Apple One, um, because I'll be honest, we cannot get jobs for everybody. And we tell you up front, I cannot guarantee you a job. But what I do want to provide you is I want to be an instrumental force in your career path. Mm-hmm. So we got tools, we got resources, and we got the support that will allow us to be that for you for a, for a season. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have a positive interaction with us, then most of the people that we work with are then referred to us. So it okay, creates that's good. this that's word good. of mouth yeah. network that keeps building and expanding so that when, you know, um, John... Uh, Smith has an opening and he needs a marketing manager. Well, I have people in my network who who fit the bill. Excellent. Yeah. Little solutioner over there. We we are problem solvers. We are professional problem solvers. And one of the uh, important things that we do is that we bring our identities to the table, so that I, I'm privileged to sometimes sit in rooms with people who don't look like me, but they're decision makers, and pull up a seat and talk with them about the problems that they have in their organizations. And the lack of this or the lack of that or how do we create more inclusivity in a meaningful way and help them shape that and give them perspective that they wouldn't otherwise have. And that's very valuable. And I'm, I'm playing that tape. I, I, for 23 years, I sold for IBM. Mm-hmm. And many of those rooms, we call them C-level rooms, uh-huh. um, being able to, first of all, connect with that customer now that's going to be your employers i'm guessing yes future okay connecting with them but also understanding and being able to replay what their issues may be their challenges may be and Mm -hmm. how you fit into the solutions that they may come up with right okay so what do you do what is your title yeah, so I'm our branch manager. So Apple One is divided up in kind of like a bank branch model, you know? Okay. Um, so we have offices all around the country, I think up to maybe 200 offices we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and each office has a branch manager, and we sort of lead the team there, and we cover a certain territory. And so the territory that my team covers is D.C., Maryland, and Northern Virginia. Part, and we share some of Northern Virginia with a team in Reston. Okay. So um, I, I oversee all of that with the support of a, of a regional vice president who, who sees uh, oversees five offices in the Mid-Atlantic. So um, what's the most recent biggest success you have experienced in your role? Um, well, I recently came back from a conference that I was afforded to be a part of, speaking directly to my peer generation, the millennial generation, and some others, and uh, working to debunk some myths um, about the um, about how to navigate the hiring process and their career search and um, talk about you know the power of you, you mentioned it earlier personal or professional branding and it, it honestly comes back to self-worth a lot of us and I remember when I was out of the job market I wish I would have known about Apple one um, mm-hmm. you know you will tie your self-worth up into whether or not they call you back for an interview mm-hmm. or whether or not you get the job offer um, and you you start to say you know what is it about me which is why they're not choosing me and that's that's the whole thing that and I, I always say it when I leave the show, you're not your circumstances. Mm-mm. And what I think 
for me as a life coach is to encourage the faith to try again after a failure yeah and understand it's a failure experience and it's not you as the failure and then we get into things like guilt and shame and all that kind yeah. of stuff that is a mess Brene Brown <laughs> love her <laughs> just read her right love her yes absolutely yeah. but before uh we get too far uh, I want to we we see where you are now mm-hmm. but I want to ask you where you where you see yourself in three years that's the question that I'm thinking about right now because what is very empowering but also a little scary actually mm-hmm. very scary um, is to know that you're in the driver's seat. Hey, hey, hey. And you get to choose. You get to shape that. So what does it look like? Okay, we're in the car with you. We're looking out. What what's, what do you see beyond the windshield? Well, the, the most important thing that I see beyond the windshield is not necessarily what, what I'm doing, mm-hmm. but um, who's with me. Okay. Talk more about that. Yeah. So um, I have a brother who, you know, got caught up in this thing that's called mass incarceration. That's the new form of Jim Crow. Yes, I do. Um, he, and he's not home with us right now. I and understand. that has completely shaped the way my life has been for the past almost seven years. Okay. It really did shape my 20s. I'm a completely different person because of this. Um, and so in three years, I see him home with us. But that's going to take a lot of work. But we've already prayed on it. So we just got to walk in the victory. So in yes. three years, that that's the most important thing that I see for me and for my life and for the life of his son, which is my nephew, who I helped to raise. Okay. Yes. All right. And, and that's, that's another uh, descriptor of how we make it as families, as African Americans in this mm-hmm. world. Yeah. And uh, family just is, is so powerful in that it's not limiting. No. And it is so inclusive. I was reading one of Toni Morrison's books, and the, and yeah. the two little daughters in in the book were saying, you know, sometimes we go to bed, and she wasn't there the night before, mm-hmm. and she's there in the morning. Yeah. And and families will go get children of distressed situations, bring them home, and care for them until it's resolved, or they find an alternative. Yeah. And I remember, I grew up in public housing, and I remember uh, we had an informal large family of families who had migrated from the South. Mm -hmm. Some of the fathers were in service, what have you. Mm -hmm. But at night, all of the the buildings were connected underground. Mm -hmm. And I remember mother would tie up some money in the corner of a handkerchief and says, take this to Aunt Aunt Dorothy. And, And I remember what the kids thought were picnics and we'd all get together and play and have fun and it's like when one family had the potatoes the other had the meat and the other had the beans you all came together to make a meal and so i hear you saying i'm raising my brother's son Mm -hmm. while he's unable to but you're pouring into this child all the things in terms of options and all what does that feel like what does that feel like um It has been a gift. Um, I won't lie, it has been a challenge. Um, But more than anything, it's been a gift. And like you just said, God has given me a voice. He's given me words. He's given me language. He's given me a way of communicating that has created more options for me. And now I get to be a catalyst for them to have more options. Yes. You know? It's more than paying it forward, though. 
Yeah. It's it's it's, it's like a, a catapulting of possibilities, you yes. know, and purpose. Like and saying purpose. to this young man, like I said to my sons, have as many options as you can at all times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. It's so valuable to know that you have options because that keeps you going forward. I think that keeps you motivated. When you feel like you don't have any options, you start to seep into something that's called depression, right? Where nothing's going to change. Been there, done that, yeah. and 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 have T-shirts and all kinds <laughs> of other things. Yeah. But what that did for me was to prepare me to do what I do now. Yes. And that is to take that experience and flip the script mm-hmm. and pour into so many people. You know, depression can be hidden by a smile. It can. You never know. That's right. Never. But I don't, I don't want us to leave what I want, the story I want you to tell about your okay. dad. Because I asked Sharita, I said, who taught you to express yourself like you do? And we were just kind of sharing stories, and this is when I found out her father's age and all. And she says, well, you pick it up now. My dad used to. He used to make us write out of the newspaper. And what I mean by that, he would make us, uh, he would get, in my city we had the Democrat and Chronicle. And he would get that newspaper every day. He had a daily subscription, and we would have to read an article we would always try to find the shortest article <laughs> on the side of the page we'd go to the sports section uh, just so we could get the stats and we'd have to read that article he got hit to our game after a while so he'd take that that um, section out um, and we would have to write it verbatim onto a piece of paper and then we would have to talk about the article with him and what we didn't realize was happening is that he was giving us language because my dad had an eighth grade education and he remembered people laughing at him because he didn't know how to read so he taught himself how to read and he taught us that the most important thing that you can give yourself is the ability to be able to read and write so he started us at a very young age with that and I, and I have to tell this story because um, not only did it benefit me but it benefited my brother in the sense that our father passed away the day before my um, 15th birthday. My, my birthday was yesterday, in fact. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. So he, he passed away on August 10, 2004, and my younger brother was only 11 at the time. But just that one skill um, has served him while he's been in his situation. He's been incarcerated. He's been able to have a sense of agency around his own case. I love it. And come to his own own understanding of what took place and how to get over the hump and do all of these things that without that nurturing we wouldn't be able to do and I have to say because it's really important my father always wanted to have a son and it didn't work out for him for various reasons and it wasn't until he was 72 years old that he finally has had a son and now his son has a son and so to see all those generations be nurtured by what he poured in has been the biggest gift and now we've talked about your father's legacy. Yeah. And I ask you to do something for me yes. that is legacy-like, which is to write a letter to the younger, your younger self. Would you like to do that now? Sure, I can share it. And let me just preface it by saying that, you know, as incredible as my dad was, my mom really did run laps around him. Uh-oh, <laughs> loving that. <laughs> so that had to be a part two. <laughs> okay. Um, it says, Dear Sharita, it's okay. I know you just suffered one of life's hardest losses. 
You're in a daze right now and you can't fully comprehend the extent of the trauma. But just know there will be joy in the midst of this struggle. Yes, more trouble lies ahead, but fret not. The victory is yours. Your natural daddy and your spiritual father have already given you everything you need to succeed. In those moments when you doubt yourself, when you dim your light, when you become your own worst enemy, just breathe and remember that no one loves you more than God. So love yourself that way. Love every inch of the skin you're in. The world will tell you to keep your mouth closed and play by the rules. Screw the rules, speak, show up, get in the arena as only you can. Stay close to your brother, listen to him, be patient with him, ask him questions. He's in pain and he doesn't know it. You can't shield him from his troubles, but you can stand by him while he moves through them. More than anything, seek your joy from within. You are your mother's daughter. You have her strength, you have her heart, you have her resilience. Cherish every moment with her that you can. Mommy and Jesus are the best examples of unconditional love that you have. Lastly, believe in yourself. Believe that you can write, believe that you can create and start now. Even if you don't feel ready, trust me, you are. Love your best friend. I love that. So what do you guys think, you out there in listening land? Should we have her back for part two? I feel inspired, I hope you do. And for those of you who just may, between now and then, when we see each other, talk to each other, feel each other again across the airwaves, let me give you some encouragement for that moment when you may need a doggy bag snack of spiritual encouragement. As we journey through our personal and professional lives, there will inevitably be periods of incredible frustration and despair. During those tough times, it will sometimes appear to us that we've lost everything and that nothing and nobody could possibly motivate us to move onward in the direction of our dreams. However, we are all wearing an emotional backpack of support. I want to tell you something that your mirror can't tell you. First, you opened two gifts this morning. They were your eyes. Every day you wake up, it is God saying to you, it's not over. You are more than who you've become. And you know this, although although each of you came with a unique set of fingerprints. And each of you is a designer's original, created to do what no one else can do. There's some common attributes and qualities that you share. When the going gets tough, when you're feeling utterly down and discouraged, you need to remember... You're a miracle. You are important. You're stronger than you feel. You're stronger than depression. You're stronger than suicide. You're smarter than you think. You have multiple intelligences. You are more beautiful than you believe. Think about this. The ugly duckling was always a swan. Others tried so hard to make her be a duckling as she was growing up. She looked different. She had different skills. She began to believe it herself. She was so unhappy until one day she saw herself in all of her glory. She was a beautiful swan. You are more loved than you can ever believe. Your story 
has not been read. You've been listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are webcast. Excuse me. And we are webcast. Uh, Sorry about that. Every Saturday night worldwide at www.radiofairfax.org at 8 o'clock. My guest today has been Ms. Sherita Wilkins, and she's coming back. Your seat at the table is guaranteed, and I look forward to next time. Until then, I want you to treat yourself like someone you love. This is Tyra G. sending you some love as well.